The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Our program brings together individuals who struggle with Alzheimer's disease or other disorders and noted professionals who can provide answers and timely information related to these disorders. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. I am your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman, and this program is about Alzheimer's and the dementias in the hope that you will be better informed and more knowledgeable because we do believe that knowledge is power. You know, the area of Alzheimer's and the dementias is uh, an area of uh, so much research interest and so much clinical interest, and it's an area of great pain and um, great misunderstanding for families as well. As a result, there are lots of news releases. There are news releases made available every day that talk about a technology or medication or a supplement or a technique or some other thing that is uh, thought to be helpful in the care and management of Alzheimer's disease and the dementias. Now, I think it was Abraham Lincoln that first advised us uh, to not believe everything that we read on the Internet, and I think that that would apply to what we read in a lot of other places as well. I think that with the best of intentions, people that manage and process items of news want to get information out and want to encourage and want to make the public knowledgeable. So I uh, thought that a good idea for the program tonight might be what I've termed bits and pieces from the news. And I've just taken a few items here and there that I thought might uh, be worthy of discussion on the program tonight, give you some background, uh, talk with you about what claims are being made on it, and talk about the scientific validity of it, and talk about the the conceptual validity of it as well. So this is what I thought might be a uh, good thing to pursue tonight. If you, as you are listening uh, this evening, have something on your mind, uh, something that you have read or uh, seen on television or heard on the radio, and you would like to present that information as well for discussion here, just call into our program or email me at sdbrinkman at hotmail.com, and we can include a discussion of the topic that you choose as well to the extent that I have knowledge or awareness of it. So uh, hopefully this will be an interesting discussion, hopefully somewhat provocative, and I hope that it will make you better consumers of research, information, and, and clinical care. So let's get on into this. One of the uh, things that has been uh, leading to some excitement right now is uh, – trying to identify what information we can learn about the brain by studying the eye. 
you know, the eye is a fascinating organ, and um, some have um, said that the retina is like a piece of brain outside of the brain in that the tissue of the retina, the uh, cells of the retina, are more similar to brain tissue than any other tissue of the body outside the brain. And so there has been interest for many years in trying to identify some characteristics of the eye that might give us some information about what's going on in the brain. So what we have are um, researchers uh, from the Department of Neurology at Mayo Clinic, I believe that David Notman, Dr. David Notman was the lead researcher on this, who have... um, developed a technique, or who have been assessing a technique, rather, developed by Cognoptics, which um, purportedly can identify amyloid in the lens of the eye or on the retina of the eye. And this is really fascinating. Why would we want to know this? Right now, the only way that we have of knowing what some would call the amyloid load in the brain or the the uh, concentration of beta amyloid clumped together in plaques, the only way that we have of knowing how much of a load there is, is through a very expensive and uh, very labor-intensive technique called PET scanning using a particular compound that when administered to the person will bind to the beta amyloid. In other words, it will connect to it And through PET scanning, positron emission tomography, uh, one can see the distribution of the beta amyloid plaque in the brain. Uh, This is a very expensive type of study. It's used for research purposes only, and um, it is not available to very many people. If there were a device that would measure beta amyloid in the retina or in the lens of the eye, and if that measurement provided a valid reflection of how much beta amyloid there was in the brain, this would be a tremendous contribution in a number of ways. First, with drug studies, and recall our discussion last week of the potential for so many different subtypes of Alzheimer's that um, we are really not able to assess potential benefits of some drugs. the uh, ability to identify people who have either severe symptoms and only a low load of beta amyloid or mild symptoms and a heavier load of of beta amyloid, this would provide so much more capability for understanding how uh, the individual should be treated and what types of experimental treatment should be developed. So in this study, Um, which is uh, expecting to include 200 participants altogether. 40 patients have been evaluated so far, and what they are reporting is that there is a good correlation between the brain pathology, the pathology that's associated with beta amyloid, and the amount of amyloid plaque that uh, is identifiable either in the um, uh, lens of the eye or in the retina of the eye. So, Based on any reasonable understanding of how scientific research should be conducted, they're taking an established measurement, which is PET scanning, and an experimental technique, which is this device that would uh, produce these measurements, and they are comparing the two. Uh, There is already evidence that the results of PET scanning 
as far as beta amyloid load is concerned, does coordinate with tissue evaluation. And so certainly um, there is reason to believe that this would be a good approach. If the device is fairly inexpensive, then an evaluation of the beta amyloid load could be done at a person's annual wellness evaluation. Already, um, the um, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has required that there be some type of standard evaluation of memory in the annual wellness evaluation and coupling the information that could be derived from such a device together with a functional measurement that of uh, a person's level of memory ability would certainly provide a powerful basis from which to measure future changes and would get people into treatment uh, much earlier than people go into treatment at this point. So I like this study. I like the approach that they are taking. I like the technique that they're using to um, evaluate the potential usefulness of this device that's being developed. And I think that it holds a great deal of promise, both from a research standpoint and from the standpoint of uh, what will be helpful in clinical decision making. Obviously, the information taken from 40 subjects has to be interpreted cautiously. Uh, There will need to be Uh, similar evaluations done on much larger sample sizes, but if this pilot study, which will include 200 research participants overall, if this pilot study suggests that there is good validity to this approach, I think that uh, uh, they will be quick to go to a much uh, wider spread study with much larger numbers. And of course, at that point, it will become necessary to um, establish age norms based on this new device as well. So a lot of promise, a lot of uh, future can potentially come from this. Now many of you have already read about the smell test that is um, being studied for determining whether there is early evidence of Alzheimer's disease as well. And this smell test is interesting because those centers of the brain that interpret the odors that are presented are vulnerable early on to the neuropathology of Alzheimer's disease. And there is evidence to suggest that assessing the patient's sense of smell may be potentially very useful as uh, an early indicator of potential problems that will become coming about. Uh, How does one assess the sense of smell? You know, this is, uh, uh, on the one hand, somewhat complicated because chemical senses have a longer refractory period, but on the other hand, it's made easy by a device that was developed, I'm guessing, in the uh, 1970s or so, and that is the scratch and sniff technique that was used with children in children's books. And so, Using this scratch and sniff technology, um, the um, standardized data do indicate that those who have a decline in the sense of smell have a greater risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And of course, you know, I would um, add into that a host of other more direct measurements of memory functioning. Uh, I personally was uh, the uh, lead research in the develop- development of the gray matter system, which is a computerized 
five standalone system that allows the individual to um, listen to instructions spoken by the computer and perform um, uh, behaviors on the computer screen using a touch screen with a large normative database to determine whether there are changes in memory and executive functioning over time. So this area of early identification is obviously important and it may involve a number of different types of measurement including evaluation of the sense of smell, a detection of any changes that might be present in the iris, uh, I'm sorry, in the lens or the retina of the eye, or by more direct measurements. So, as I said, I like this study. I think it holds some good progress, and um, I will look forward to uh, further development of this technology in the future. Now, the next headline that I came across that I thought would be interesting for us to discuss today, and the headline um, is Hard Evidence We Can Slow Alzheimer's by Exercising the Body and the Mind. This is an interesting and fundamentally important study, and we will uh, go through some of the data supportive of that. You know, People that have been doing dementia care have encouraged people to make certain lifestyle changes in the expectation that that would result in better symptom control, such as maintaining a higher level of functioning for a longer period of time, uh, or in other words, slowing down the rate of progression, um, improving quality of life each step of the way, and things like that. So this will be a study that we will uh, talk about in just a little bit, and it involves evaluation of whether physical exercise, mental exercise, social interactions, and diet and nutrition changes can actually slow Alzheimer's disease in reality. It's nice to think that we would have that capability. I think that it would be wonderful if this can be demonstrated. So we are going to go to a break in just a couple of minutes to give the Honorable workers at Voice America the opportunity to catch up and when we return we will talk about whether these lifestyle changes can actually result in significant clinically improved uh, management techniques. So stay with us and we will be right back. Your life your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. 
Every day we face struggles and issues concerning addiction, whether it's ourselves, family members, friends, or other loved ones. On Overcoming Addiction, Hope with Prevention, Intervention, and Treatment, Dr. Joe Terhar helps us all better understand the causes and approaches to addressing addiction with the knowledge that no single approach is 100% effective. From guest experts, families, and addicts, you'll hear about what is and is not working in overcoming addiction. Tune in Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. Thank you for staying with us. Uh, it has come to my attention that perhaps it was not Abraham Lincoln that advised us to not believe everything that we read on the Internet. I will take that under advisement and uh, we'll do some research and come back to you on that topic. Um, by the way, we now have our Facebook available, so uh, please um, look at our Facebook for uh, news of events that are taking place, interesting items of information, and the Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash neuropsychology clinic. Neuropsychology Clinic is the place that I work, and uh, that is the name of the Facebook page as well. Now, we have this headline, hard evidence, hard evidence, we can slow Alzheimer's by exercising the body and the mind. So let's take a look at this. What these authors who are from Finland are suggesting is that if we participate in a regular, regular physical exercise program, are engaged in regular mental exercise or mental stimulation, uh, maintain good social interactions, and manage our diets and um, nutritional uh, factors well, then we can, in reality, slow the rate of decline of Alzheimer's disease. This is quite a, an impressive comment, and if true, would be of great interest to us. So, let's look at this. Research out of Finland part of the Finnish geriatric intervention study to prevent cognitive impairment and disability. These researchers followed 1,260 patients, so we have a lot of patients in this study, and these were persons who were at considered to be at high risk of developing dementia, and um, they had these people put into different groups that would uh, ev- that would include Um, specific regular nutritional sessions that involved teaching about uh, dietary changes, focusing on adding fruits, vegetables, and fish, and avoiding saturated fats. Additionally, intensive exercise 
which included muscle building once or twice a week, as well as cardiovascular training two to four times per week. Uh, the uh, weight training continued throughout the duration of the study, and the cardio training ramped up to five or six times per week. So we're looking at a pretty intensive and uh, committed exercise program here. Um, cognitive training exercises. These were done in 11 different group sessions over the course of the study. And, of course, there was lots of independent training and participants um, independently um, Uh, pursued cognitive stimulation exercises as well. So uh, these are the uh, things that were done. And of course, the social interaction aspect of it was a component of the group format that was done. Duration of the study was two years. Um, And what these researchers have found, and let me look specifically at my notes here, that even in individuals who were a little bit later in life, participants were all between 60 and 77 years of age, even for these individuals, having a lifestyle-modifying program like this resulted in significant decline in the rate of progression of Alzheimer's disease and um, these were um, these findings were established by objective measurements. Now, the measurements involved here included standardized tests of memory and executive functioning as well as psychomotor speed. And of course, they had a um, uh, a control group which did not participate in any of those activities. The measurements were taken without awareness of what group any of the participants were actually in. But uh, it was interesting to note significant improvement on these measurements of executive uh, and memory functioning and psychomotor speed over the course of the study. Now, what do we do with this information? Well, first of all, I like the sample size. This is a reasonably good sample size uh, for an initial study to look at the effects of these things. This is a resource-intensive study in that the research team had to spend a great deal of time with these study participants over the course of the study uh, simply because of the nature of the treatments. These treatments are somewhat labor-intensive. They do require significant staff time. And as outcome measures, you know, the measurement of memory or executive functioning or psychomotor speed, these are reasonable outcome measures to go with. In the long run, of course, what we want to do is slow the rate of decline, delay the onset of impairments, and um, and then eventually arrest the decline and do what is necessary to get improvements in the level of functioning in all of these key areas. Uh, this study suggests that um, uh, the um, recommendations of many others over the past seven or eight years um, do have validity in that these things uh, do have positive benefit, physical exercise, mental exercise, social interactions, and dietary changes. These do have beneficial effects, and certainly these findings point to that uh, general um, 
pessimism that when someone has Alzheimer's disease or some other form of dementia, there's nothing that can be done. Certainly, there are things that can be done, and these are among those. Now, what is needed in the long run, as uh, you would expect, is a much larger sample size with um, more detailed understanding of the types of things in each of these treatment categories that would be most helpful. For example, is it cardiovascular exercise or muscle building exercise that's necessary here? I know that in general, uh, people have felt that it's more cardiovascular in nature, but that's not um, agreed on right now. What types of mental exercises would be helpful? You know, people like to do crossword puzzles, um, Sudoku for those that like numbers, uh, word search type things. Um, there are many puzzles that are available in paper and pencil form uh, that are available on iPads or uh, can be gotten from the internet and uh, for little to no cost and certainly um, there are a lot of people that look to these things to help to stall the rate of decline in their cognitive functioning uh, but are there some that are better than others? My feeling has been that, number one, whatever the cognitive exercise is, the more relevant and inherently interesting it is, the more compliance you will have and the more energy will be put into it. If someone says Sudoku is the thing to do and you are a person that simply does not like numbers, then Sudoku is probably not the thing for you to do. So um, there needs to be more research into what aspects of each of these areas would be most relevant. Uh, many of you listeners will recall when we had a discussion with Dr. Nancy Lombardo from uh, Boston College Medical School who has such detailed knowledge to provide us regarding diet and nutrition. And that program is available to you in, um, in our archives if you want to go back and listen to it. But certainly there is strong evidence that dietary and nutritional factors are relevant. And uh, we certainly encourage people who are dealing with cognitive impairments to utilize everything at their disposal to uh, slow the rate of decline and to keep their level of functioning up. One of the things that we don't know right now is how different components of these treatments work together. For example, would physical exercise without mental exercise be individually healthy? Would social activity independent of diet and nutritional changes be healthy. So we don't have an assessment of the strength of contribution of each of these things individually, but this is a study that uh, certainly suggests that the individual who is experiencing cognitive decline has some things at his or her disposal that can be brought to bear on the situation with a reasonable expectation that they would be helpful, that they would be therapeutic for the individual. The big problem is this thing called lifestyle change. You know, we, we get into habits, and these habits persist for a long time, often through our entire adulthood. And so when we look at someone who has not enjoyed physical exercise, now looking at the possibility of getting into a regular physical exercise program, even if it's only two or three times per week, this is a major change in um, their activities and uh, if, if there's not some um, some guidance and some external encouragement for that, it's not likely to persist. But these lifestyle changes um, 
certainly um, are supported by significant evidence in this study from Finland, and I will look forward to follow up on that area as well. There has been previous research that demonstrated, as an example, that a regular walking program may increase or improve perfusion, in other words, the delivery of oxygen and glucose into the hippocampi of the brain. These are the memory centers of the brain, and these are the structures that have the earliest changes associated with Alzheimer's disease. There is also evidence outside of this study that these mental exercise programs or cognitive exercise programs may increase perfusion in the frontal lobes of the brain, the so-called executive centers of the brain. So there are bits and pieces of research with smaller sample sizes that are supportive of this. And this Finnish study, this uh, study from Finland, does bring a lot of these things together. So again, I like the study and we will follow it and see what it means. But in the meantime, um, those of you who are wanting to do everything that you can to delay progression or even delay onset of memory problems and that type of thing, take advantage of uh, this study and its uh, preliminary results. Certainly, these, uh, these uh, lifestyle changes are good for cardiovascular health. That has been well demonstrated. Now, the next thing that we're going to look at, the next thing has to do with sleep and the aging of the brain. You know, this um, also can be a difficult thing to study, but the question is, if a person sleeps more or sleeps less, does that have any implication for how rapidly the brain will age? And, of course, a key question in a study like this is, how do we actually measure aging of the brain? So, uh, when we come back from our break, I will go over um, some research in this area, research out of China, and we'll present that to you and uh, let you consider it and, um, and follow up on it. So, stay with us. We are going to go to a short break, and we will be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. 
Gray matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. Oh, excuse me, I fell asleep. The question is, did my falling asleep... Oh, that's too corny. The question is, does sleep or lack of sleep speed up the aging process in the brain in older individuals? That's the question that's being addressed by the study out of China. And in this study, healthy individuals 55 years or older in age um, described their sleep patterns and then underwent magnetic resonance imaging and neuropsychological uh, uh, neuropsychological assessment to determine whether the um, sleep habits had anything to do with the assessment of brain aging, either through looking at the anatomy of the brain by MRI or the functioning of the brain by neuropsychological assessment. And so, basically, here's what they did for outcome measures. The first thing has to do with having the MRI done. You know, MRI is not a cheap study, and it's not a simple study, um, but it provides a, a an exquisite view of the uh, structure of the brain. And in this study, the researchers measured the size of the lateral ventricles of the brain. So let me explain to you what that means exactly. You know that there is a fluid, cerebral spinal fluid, abbreviated CSF, that flows throughout the brain and on down through the spinal canal. If somebody has ever had a spinal tap, that fluid that is drawn uh, by a a spinal tap is that CSF or cerebral spinal fluid. Well, this fluid flows through different cavities of the brain as well as through different small spaces in the brain and on down the spinal canal. These cavities of the brain are called the lateral ventricles. There are two of those, one in each hemisphere of the brain, and then the third ventricle, and the fourth ventricle, uh, third and fourth ventricles being significantly smaller. And these ventricles are connected by uh, little uh, pathways that we refer to as uh, an aqueduct or a 
something like that. And so if you measure the size of the lateral ventricles, one would expect that if there's a lot of loss in the bulk of the brain, if a lot of brain cells are dying off, one would see larger ventricles in the brain. Uh, the uh, only exception to that would be some situations in which there would be increased pressure in those ventricles, forcing them to expand. But that type of case would be ruled out in a study like this. And so uh, it would seem that measurement of the size of the lateral ventricles is a useful outcome measurement here. I uh, might add that when CT scanning became available in 1973, actually, is when the uh, research that lies behind CT scanning was published. Uh, as CT scanning became available, measurements of ventricular size were undertaken to try to establish norms for, for uh, different age groups so that a comparison could be made for an individual who was thought to be developing some type of atrophy of the brain, and so that if the ventricles were larger than they should be, and there was no evidence of increased pressure in the ventricles, then one might thought that there was an unusually fast rate of brain loss. So the magnetic resonance imaging or MRI study uh, provided information on ventricular size, and the MRI was done once per year so that these researchers could also look at how rapidly the size of the ventricles were, uh, would be changing over time. The other had to do with of standardized assessments of key cognitive areas with respect to uh, the aging and the dementias. And we know that, of course, memory is one of the more prominent things that would be, need to be measured. And uh, then um, executive functioning and to a lesser degree real early on perceptual skills and perceptual motor skills and measurement of complex movements and things like that. Well, the researchers did the study and uh, these individuals were followed over a two-year period. And what they found is that even over just two years, these 66 subjects, again, 55 years of age and older, these uh, 66 subjects um, had greater change in the volume of the brain, in other words, increase in the ventricular size, if they had shorter sleep duration at night, uh, they also had more significant change in their cognitive skills, such as memory and ex executive functions, if they um, had shorter amount of sleep at night. Now, there are lots of potential explanations for this. Sleep is a very necessary uh, biological state. There are so many processes that take place during sleep that have to do with maintaining brain health and that have to do with memory consolidation process and things like that. But sleep is something that really is underappreciated for its significance to our overall health and well-being. And so here we have evidence that um, not having regular uh, short nights of sleep, but having uh, a healthy amount of sleep would be most effective for fighting against brain aging. So, what shall we do? Uh, sleep more? How much more should we sleep? How long should an adult in this uh, 55 and over age group sleep for it to be beneficial? Well, the general rule of thumb is that seven hours a day for an adult seems to be the right amount of sleep that will maintain good performance uh, in terms of cognitive functioning over time. 
Um, and so I think that it uh, that tells us that if we are not consistently getting seven hours of sleep per day, then we are increasing the risk of developing a more rapidly aging brain or a brain that is showing more atrophy, more loss in overall brain balk, and we are also accepting more limitation in our cognitive functioning than is necessary as we age. Interesting study, and um, I certainly do not see uh, anything in this study that says this uh, simply does not hold validity. Obviously, 66 subjects um, represent a pretty small sample size, and um, recording sleep duration is helpful um, as a uh, predictor of how much brain aging would take place, but there are better ways of measuring sleep, and there are aspects of sleep that are important independently of how much sleep there is. So this study is a good jumping-off point. Uh, it certainly is not by any means a conclusive study, uh, but it certainly provides us with a compelling reason to pay attention to our sleep habits to see that we get enough sleep and um, also that we get the uh, the good quality of sleep. Now, on the topic of sleep, as you know, sleep is a very dynamic process. It's not a, um, a passive process. It's not a process in which uh, the brain simply checks out and does not do anything. So we know it to be an active process, and we know that there are certain components of sleep that become very critically important. One of these would be uh, what we might think of as deeper sleep, uh, sleep that is characterized by marked slowing of the EEG, the brainwave study, and we also know that that REM sleep, which is associated with rapid eye movements, generally seen as the dreaming state during sleep, um, but a, uh, uh, a sleep in which the brain is significantly more active. We know that these two components are very important, and the extension of this study, in addition to adding a whole lot more subjects, would be to look at what aspects of sleep are taking place in the normal range or above or below normal. We do know that some people seem to function very well with not much sleep. Some people uh, desire a lot more sleep, and if there are no medications that would be uh, dictating that, um, then uh, uh, we would expect that there would be very different baselines from which a change in sleep pattern would emerge and which would then differentially affect brain aging. But a study that uh, certainly can be added to the previous study. Uh, so as we talk about physical exercise, mental exercise, social interactions, and diet and nutrition, it would be reasonable, I think, to add um, uh, a good sleep education program with some good sleep measurements to an outcome study to see whether the uh, research out of China provides information that would add to the research that we had covered out of Finland. Very interesting study and um, I think that the main thing for us to take from it right now is that it's important that we pay attention to sleep, um, not just in our um, uh, states of fatigue or based on our work cycle, uh, and not just in terms of the hours of sleep, but uh, in terms of the quality of sleep as well. Many people do not 
get enough sleep in this country. And and there are various reasons for that. Shift work, uh, where some people will work day shift for a couple of weeks, then evening, and then the midnight shift. You know, this is very disruptive to healthy sleep habits. Uh, some people simply have a primary insomnia. You know, they their brains will simply not settle into a good night's sleep, and uh, the reasons for that should be addressed uh, by contacting your primary care physician to determine whether this is a modifiable condition or not. Certain other things will disrupt sleep very consistently, and among those, not the least of which would be post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, uh, military individuals coming back from a combat situation, individuals who have experienced an extremely stressful situation um, or encountered a situation that lies well out of the, the normal range of human experiences and is very shocking and can present danger to the person or another. So these types of things that come under the heading of PTSD certainly can be disruptive of sleep. Uh, Alcohol intake, uh, time of the evening meal, fluid intake before going to bed, all of these things can be considered. So I would suggest that you do analyze your sleep habits and accept that uh, it makes good sense conceptually and it makes sense from the study out of China that uh, sleep would be good for a person's brain health and um, uh, cognitive health as well and follow up on it in that way. So we are going to go to another break and when we return for our fourth segment, um, I will talk a little bit more about what's been in the news. Stay with us and we will return. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters. 
the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to NeuroMatters. Welcome back for our fourth segment. You know, I think I'm getting this Abraham Lincoln thing figured out. Um, my understanding is that the White House did not have an Internet connection when Abraham Lincoln was president. Therefore, he probably is not the one that advised us to not believe everything we read on the Internet. I suspect that that's the case. Hopefully, that will lay the issue to rest. Anyway, I have a question that's been emailed to us, and the question is this. Does someone who has Alzheimer's disease already begin to sleep abnormally? Um, For example, uh, when uh, uh, people who have um, uh, experience in caregiving for Alzheimer's disease, their observation is that sleep certainly seems to be changed. So does having Alzheimer's disease already make sleep abnormal, and does that make the progression get worse or affect it at all? Well, I have to tell you that really is a very good question. There is research to suggest that the uh, sleep pattern in Alzheimer's disease is different from the sleep pattern in normal aging, and it would be reasonable then to conclude that um, there is an abnormal sleep pattern associated with Alzheimer's disease. The second part of the question, though, has to do with whether someone who has Alzheimer's disease and has a difficult time thinking, whether that makes that person progress more rapidly or does it affect the symptom picture at all. And my answer to that question uh, will not be based on any specific research that I can cite except to say that we know that good quality sleep is important for cardiovascular health. We know that in both Alzheimer's disease and normal aging, cardiovascular Vascular health has a lot to do with brain health. And so it would seem likely on the basis of that to conclude that poor quality sleep in a patient with Alzheimer's disease would certainly result in worsening of functioning and would potentially result in a more rapid progression as well. So that is how I would uh, address that question. Also, of course, for any of us, functioning in a sleep-deprived state is likely to Um, make us function more worse and um, when we are sleep deprived and especially when we're chronically repeatedly sleep deprived uh, we will tend to become a lot more irritable, we will have less cognitive efficiency and um, we will uh, probably be at greater risk for depression as well so um, that's how I would address that question. I've had a question sent in from a college student Does sleep deprivation at my age affect my chances at getting Alzheimer's disease later? Sleep deprivation um, at this point, there's no research that I could identify that would say this would increase your risk for developing Alzheimer's disease later as long as the sleep deprivation that you're experiencing now does not simply become a uh, common part of your life or an enduring feature of 
your life. If because of your work or because of uh, other situations and factors, you are chronically sleep deprived and you live that way for a long time, the early research out of China would suggest that uh, it would certainly make your brain more vulnerable to the development of Alzheimer's disease and my guess to the development of other types of dementias as well. So that's how I would answer those two questions. I thank you for sending those questions in. They do appear to be very well thought out. Now, I want to um, give you some tools that you can utilize so that when you see a newspaper headline that says new drug or new chemical or new uh, nutritional factor may prevent Alzheimer's or may be an Alzheimer's breakthrough or something like that, I'd like to give you an understanding and a simple tool that you can utilize to say, what do I do with this information? How excited should I be about it? How promising is it? How long before it's going to make any difference in the world of clinical care. So let's address that issue, specifically with respect to any type of a biological treatment that may be a medication, a nutrition, um, it may be uh, uh, some other type of biological treatment. You know, there are uh, things that, for example, pulse magnetic um, uh, waves into the head and and things along those lines. So how how do we address this? Well, the first question that I would suggest that you ask of the study as you read the newspaper article is, who exactly are the subjects? Most of the time when I see a headline about a new and promising or exciting treatment, most of the time the uh, article is based on a study that was done with rodents, not even with humans. We talked in our program last week about genetically modified rodents that develop some characteristics um, that, are, that are seen in Alzheimer's, specifically that being the beta amyloid plaques and the fact that a substance will alter uh, the plaque development in genetically altered mice does not by any means dictate that it will be beneficial for humans and there is a long, long process between that and its application to human beings. So question number one, who are the subjects? If they're laboratory animals, then um, there is not much reason to anticipate something quickly coming out of it, and I would uh, uh, take it as a point of interest, but uh, not having a lot of promise at this time. So, with human subjects now, the question to ask is, what phase of research are we in? The Food and Drug Administration requires three phases of research before a medication or nutritional substance will be approved, phase one, phase two, and phase three. A phase one trial means that the safety of the substance is being evaluated uh, utilizing healthy young adult research subjects. Now, safety would already have been evaluated by administering the substance to uh, laboratory animals and evaluating their kidney and their livers and and uh, things like that. So, in human trials, a phase one trial means that the safety of the proposed drug is being evaluated in young adult healthy individuals. and. Based on the findings there, the drug may or may not proceed to a phase two trial. A phase two trial 
continues to look at the safety issue with respect to the uh, proposed medication or nutritional substance. So it will continue to look at the safety issue, but now in older subjects and perhaps in subjects that have some um, evidence of Alzheimer's disease already. So the key thing in the phase two trial is that you are moving to subjects that are more similar to those who would eventually be treated by the drug, but the primary concern continues to be safety. And then secondarily, there will be included in that phase two trial an assessment of whether it's beneficial or not. So if we have drug A that shows to be safe in young, healthy adults in terms of liver function, kidney function, and other things, and it goes to phase two trials with older individuals, they will continue to have many, many um, outcome measures that are geared towards safety and will have some measures included in that that will address the issue of potential treatment effectiveness. Then we go to the phase three trial and the phase three trial is where the rubber really meets the road. In the phase three trial, some subjects will be given placebo, some will be given the target medication, um, some may be given different doses of the target medication, they may alternate, subjects may alternate on placebo and target medication. Somewhere along the line, it will um, have uh, multiple treatments like that, placebo, dose one, dose two, dose three, or whatever. And the uh, subjects in that study are the subjects that are targeted for the medication. So this will be a study of individuals who have Alzheimer's disease, if that's what the drug is targeting, and it will involve a much, much larger group of subjects. Now we're looking at uh, a sample size that will be in the thousands. And um, if the drug proves at that point to be safe, and to um, have treatment effectiveness, it will be submitted to the FDA for approval for its use. There will follow from that then clinical use of the drug, but additional phase four information that has to do with further collecting information on safety and side effects as the drug begins to be used more and more. So understanding that little framework, animal studies on through phase three and four studies will help you to understand the article that you're reading. Well, that's about all that we have on the uh, bits and pieces from the news for tonight. Next week, we are going to be talking about driving, and we will have as our guest Meredith Lyons, a driving rehabilitation specialist from Maryland. I think it will be an interesting discussion, certainly relevant uh, to individuals with uh, uh, early uh, Alzheimer's disease, disease or some similar disorder. Thank you for being with us today, and I look forward to being back with you next week. Good night. Thank you for listening to Neuro Matters, the Brink of Alzheimer's. Please join Dr. Sam Brinkman again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week.